Section 12 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4 by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 28 francis the first and charles the fifth part twelve did francis the first flatter himself that his order to have his son the dauphin declared and crowned king and the departure of his sister marguerite who was going if not to carry the actual text of the resolution at any rate to announce it to the regent and to france would embarrass charles v so far as to make him relax in his pretensions to the duchy of burgundy and its dependencies there was nothing to show that he was allured by such a hope anyhow if it may have for a moment arisen in his mind it soon vanished charles v insisted peremptorily upon his, his requirements and francis i at once gave up his attitude of firmness and granted instead the concession demanded of him that is the relinquishment of burgundy and its dependencies to charles v to hold and enjoy with every right of supremacy until it had been judged decided and determined by arbiters elected on the emperor's part and of our own to whom the said duchy countships and other territories belong and for guarantee of this concession the dauphin the king's eldest son and his second son henry duke of orleans or other great personages to the number of twelve should be sent to him and remain in his keeping as hostages the regent louise was not without a hand in this determination of the king her maternal affection took alarm at the idea of her son's being for an indefinite period a prisoner in the hands of the enemy besides in that case war seemed to her inevitable and she dreaded the responsibility which would be thrown upon her Charles V, on his side, was essentially a prudent man. He disliked remaining, unless it were absolutely necessary, for a long while in a difficult position. His chancellor, Gattinera, refused to seal a treaty extorted by force and violated in advance by lack of good faith. Bring the king of France so low, he said, that he can do you no harm, or treat him so well that he can wish you no harm, or keep him a prisoner, the worst thing you can do is to let him go half satisfied. Charles V persisted in his pacific resolution. There is no knowing whether he was tempted to believe in the reality of Francis I's concession and to regard the guarantees as seriously meant, but it is evident that Francis I himself considered them a mere sham, and four months previously, on the 22nd of August, 1525, at the negotiations entered into on this subject he had taken care to deposit in the hands of his negotiators a nullifying protest against all pacts conventions renunciations quittances revocations derogations and oaths that he might have to make contrary to his honour and the good of his crown to the profit of the said emperor or any other whosoever on the thirteenth of january fifteen twenty six four weeks after having given his ambassadors orders to sign the treaty of madrid containing the relinquishment of burgundy and its dependencies the very evening before the day on which the treaty was signed francis i renewed at madrid itself 
and again placed in the hands of his ambassadors his protest of the twenty second of august proceeding against this act declaring that it was through force and constraint confinement and length of imprisonment that he had signed it and that all that was contained in it was and should remain null and of no effect we may not have unlimited belief in the scrupulosity of modern diplomats but assuredly they would consider such a policy so fundamentally worthless that they would be ashamed to practice it we may not hold sheer force in honor but open force is better than mendacious weakness and less debasing for a government as well as for a people as soon as the treaty of madrid was signed the emperor came to madrid to see the king then they went both in one litter to see queen eleanor the emperor's sister and the king of portugal's widow whom by the said treaty the king was to espouse before he left spain which he did after which francis was escorted by leno to fontaruba whilst on the other hand the regent louise and the king's two sons who were to go as hostages to spain were on the way to bayonne a large bark was anchored in the middle of the bidasoa the boundary of the two kingdoms between irun and andai lenoy put the king on board and received in exchange from the hands of marshal lautrec the little princes francis and henry the king gave his children his blessing and reached the french side while they were being removed to the spanish as soon as he set foot on shore he leaped upon a fine turkish horse exclaiming as he started at a gallop for bayonne where his mother and his sister awaited him so now i am king again on becoming king again he fell under the dominion of three personal sentiments which exercised a decisive influence upon his conduct and consequently upon the destiny of france joy at his liberation a thirsting for revenge we will not say for vengeance to be wreaked on charles v and the burden of the engagement he had contracted at madrid in order to recover his liberty alternately swayed him from bayonne he repaired to bordeaux where he reassembled his court and thence to cognac in st Andre, where he passed nearly three months almost entirely abandoning himself to field sports galas diversions and pleasures of every kind as if to indemnify himself for the wearisome and the gloom in which he had lived at madrid age subdues the blood adversity the mind risks the nerve and the despairing monarch had no hope but in pleasures says tavan in his memoirs such was francis i smitten of women both in body and mind it is the little circle of madame de tampes that governs one of the regent's maids of honor anne de Healy, whom francis i made duchess of Etampes, took the place of the countess of chateaubriand as his favorite with strange indelicacy francis demanded back from madame de chateaubriand the beautiful jewels of gold which he had given her and which bore tender mottoes of his sister's marguerite's composition the countess took time enough to have the jewels melted down and said to the king's envoy take that to the king and tell him that as he has been pleased to recall what he gave me i send it back to him in metal as for the mottoes i cannot suffer any one but myself to enjoy them dispose of them and have pleasure of them the king sent back the medal to madame chateaubriand 
It was the mottoes that he wished to see again, but he did not get them. At last it was absolutely necessary to pass from pleasures to business. The envoys of Charles V, with Lenoy the viceroy of Naples at their head, went to Cognac to demand execution of the Treaty of Madrid. Francis waited, ere he gave them an answer, for the arrival of the delegates from the estates of Burgundy, whom he had summoned to have their opinion as to the cession of the duchy. These delegates, meeting at Cognac in June 1527, formally repudiated the cession, and being opposed, they said, to the laws of the kingdom, to the rights of the king, who could not, by his sole authority, alienate any portion of his dominions, and to his coronation oath, which superseded his oath made at Madrid. Francis invited the envoys of Charles V to a solemn meeting of his court and council present at Cognac, at which the delegates from Burgundy repeated their protest. Whilst availing himself of this declaration as an insurmountable obstacle to the complete execution of the Treaty of Madrid, Francis offered to give two million crowns for the redemption of Burgundy, and to observe the other arrangements of the treaty, including the relinquishment of Italy and his marriage with the sister of Charles V. Charles formally rejected this proposal. The king of France, he said, promised and swore, on the faith of an honest king and prince, that if he did not carry out the said restitution of Burgundy, he would incontinently come and surrender himself prisoner to his majesty the emperor wherever he might be to undergo imprisonment in the place where the said lord the emperor might be pleased to order him up to and until the time when this present treaty should be completely filled and accomplished let the king of france keep his oath however determined he was at bottom to elude the strict execution of the treaty of madrid francis was anxious to rebut the charge of perjury by shifting the responsibility onto the shoulders of the people themselves and their representatives. He did not like to summon the States General of the Kingdom and recognize their right as well as their power, but after the meeting at Cognac he went to Paris and, on the 12th of December, 1527, the Parliament met in state with adjunct of the Princes of the Blood, a great number of cardinals, bishops, noblemen, deputies from the Parliaments of Toulouse, Bordeaux, Rouen, Dijon, Grenoble, and Aix, and the municipal body of Paris. In presence of this assembly, the king went over the history of his reign, his expeditions in Italy, his alternate successes and reverses, and his captivity. If my subjects have suffered, he said, I have suffered with them. He then caused to be read the letters patent whereby he had abdicated and transferred the crown to his son, the Dauphin, devoting himself to captivity forever. He explained the present conditions of the finances, and what he could furnish for the ransom of his sons detained as hostages, and he ended by offering to return as a prisoner to Spain, if no other way could be found out of a difficult position, for he acknowledged having given his word, adding, however, that he had thought it pledged him nothing, since it had not been given freely." This last argument was of no value morally or diplomatically, but in his bearing and his language Francis I displayed grandeur and emotion. The assembly also showed emotion. They were four days deliberating. With some slight diversity of form, the various bodies present came to the same conclusion, and on the 16th of December, 1527, 
the Parliament decided that the king was not bound either to return to Spain or to execute, as to that matter, the Treaty of Madrid, and that he might with full sanction and justice levy on his subjects two million crowns for the ransom of his sons and the other requirements of the state. Before inviting such manifestations, Francis I had taken measures to prevent them from being in vain. Since the Battle of Pavia and his captivity at Madrid, the condition and disposition of Europe, and especially of Italy, had changed. From 1513 to 1523, three popes, Leo X, Adrian VI, and Clement VII, had occupied the Holy See. Adrian VI alone embraced the cause of Charles V, whose preceptor he had been, but he reigned only one year, eight months, and five days and even during that short time he made only a timid use of his power on his patron's behalf. His successor, Clement VII, was a Florentine and a Medici, and consequently but little inclined to favor the emperor's policy. The success of Charles V at Pavia and the captivity of Francis I inspired the Pope and all Italy with great dread of the imperial pretensions and predominance. A league was formed between Rome, Florence, Venice, and Milan for the maintenance of Italian independence, and, as the Pope was at its head, it was called the Holy League. Secret messages and communications were interchanged between these Italian states, the Regent Louise of Savoy at Paris, and King Henry VIII in London, to win them over to this coalition, not less important, it was urged, for the security of Europe than of Italy. The Regent of France and the King of England received these overtures favorably. Promises were made on either side, and a commencement was even made of preparations which were hastily disavowed at Paris and in London, when Charles V testified some surprise at them. But when Francis I was restored to freedom and returned to his kingdom, fully determined in his own mind not to execute the Treaty of Madrid, the negotiations with Italy became more full of meaning and reality. As early as the 22nd of May, 1526, whilst he was still deliberating with his court and parliament as to how he should behave towards Charles V touching the Treaty of Madrid, Francis I entered into the Holy League with the Pope, the Venetians, and the Duke of Milan for the independence of Italy, and on the 8th of August following, Francis I and Henry VIII undertook by a special treaty to give no assistance one against the other to Charles V, and Henry VIII promised to exert all his efforts to get Francis I's two sons, left as hostages in Spain, set at liberty. Thus the war between Francis I and Charles V, after fifteen months of suspension, resumed its course. It lasted three years in Italy, from 1526 to 1529, without interruption, but also without result. It was one of those wars which are prolonged from a difficulty of living in peace rather than from any serious intention on either side of pursuing a clear and definite object. Bourbon and Lannoy commanded the imperial armies, the Trek the French army. Only two events, one for its singularity, and the other for its tragic importance, deserved to have the memory of them perpetuated in history. After the Battle of Pavia, and whilst Francis I was a captive in Spain, Bourbon, who had hitherto remained in Italy, arrived at Madrid on the 13th of November, 1525, 
almost at the same time at which Marguerite de Valois was leaving it for France. Charles V received the hero of Pavia with the strongest marks of consideration and favor, and the Spanish army were enthusiastic in their attachment to him. Among the great Spanish lords, there were several who despised him as a traitor to his king and country. Charles V asked the Marquis de Vienna to give him quarters in his palace. I can refuse the king nothing, said the Marquis, but as soon as the traitor is out of the house, I will fire it with my own hand. No man of honor could live in it any more. Holding this great and then at the same time doubtful position, Bourbon remained in Spain up to the moment when the war was renewed between Francis I and Charles V. The latter could not at the time dispense with his services in Italy, for the only soldier who could have taken his place there, the Marquis of Pescara, had died at Milan on the 30th of November, 1525, aged 36. Charles V at once sent Bourbon to take the command of the imperial armies in Italy. On arriving at Milan in July 1527, Bourbon found not only that town, but all the emperor's party in Italy, in such a state of disorder, alarm, and exhaustion, as to render them incapable of any great effort. In view of this general disturbance, Bourbon, who was as ambitious as able, and had become the chief of the great adventurers of his day, conceived the most audacious hopes. Charles V had promised him the Duchy of Milan. Why should he not have the Kingdom of Naples also, and make himself independent of Charles V? He had immense influence over his Spanish army, and he had recruited it in Germany with from fourteen to fifteen thousand Langnecks, the greater part of them Lutherans, and right glad to serve Charles V then at war with the Pope. Their commander, Freinsberg, a friend of Bourbon's, had got made a handsome gold chain, expressly, he said, to hang and strangle the Pope with his own hand, because honor to whom honor is due, and since the Pope called himself premier in Christendom, he must be deferred to somewhat more than the others. On the 30th of January, 1527, at Picenza, Bourbon, the late constable of France, put himself at the head of this ruck of bold and greedy adventurers. I am now, said he to them, nothing but a poor gentleman who hasn't a penny to call his own any more than you have. But if you will have a little patience, I will make you all rich or die in the attempt. And so saying, he distributed amongst them all he had left of money, rings, and jewels, keeping for himself nothing but his clothes and a jacket of silver tissue to put on over his armor. We will follow you everywhere, to the devil himself, shouted the soldiers. No more Julius Caesar, Hannibal, and Scipio. Hooray for the fame of Bourbon. Bourbon led this multitude through Italy, halting before most of the towns, Bologna and Florence even, which he felt a momentary inclination to attack, but after all continuing his march until, having arrived in sight of Rome, on the 5th of March, 1527, in the evening he pitched his camp, visited his guards, and ordered the assault for the morrow. The great chances of our destiny, said he to his troops, have brought us hither to the place where we desired to be, after traversing so many bad roads in midwinter, with snows and frost so great, with rain and mud and encounters of the enemy, 
in hunger and in thirst, and without a halfpenny. Now it is time to show courage, manliness, and the strength of your bodies. If this bout you are victorious, you will be rich lords and mighty well off. If not, you will be quite the contrary. Yonder is the city whereof, in times past, a wise astrologer prophesied concerning me, telling me that I should die there. But I swear to you that I care but little for dying there, if when I die my corpse be left with endless glory and renown throughout the world. Afterwards he gave the word for retiring, some to rest and some to guard, and for every one to be ready to assault on the morrow early. After that the stars became obscured by the great resplendency of the sun and the flashing arms of the soldiers who were preparing for the assault. Bourbon, clad all in white that he might be better known and seen, which was not the sign of a coward, and armor in hand, marched in front close up to the wall, and when he had mounted two rungs on the ladder, just as he had said the night before, so did it happen to him, that envious, or to more properly speak, traitorous fortune, would have an arabesque shot to hit him full in the left side and wound him mortally. And albeit she took from him his being and his life, yet could she not in one single respect take away his magnanimity and his vigor so long as his body had sense, as he well showed out of his own mouth, for having fallen when he was hit, he told certain of his most faithful friends, who were nigh him, and especially the Gascon Captain Jonas, to cover him with a cloak and take him away, that his death might not give occasion to others to leave an enterprise so well begun. Just then, as Monsieur de Bourbon had recommended, to cover and hide his body, so did his men, in such sort that the escalade and assault went on so furiously that the town, after a little resistance, was carried, and the soldiers, having by this time got wind of his death, fought the more furiously that they might be avenged, the which it is certainly was right well, for they set up a shout of, Slay, slay, blood, blood, bourbon, bourbon. The celebrated artist in gold, Benvenuto Cellini, says, in his life written by himself, that it was he who, from the top of the wall of the Campo Santo at Rome, aiming his arquebus at the midst of a group of besiegers, amongst whom he saw one man mounted higher than the rest, hit him, and then he then saw an extraordinary commotion around this man, who was Bourbon, as he found out afterwards. I have heard say at Rome, says Brantum, on the contrary, that it was held that he who fired that wretched arquebus shot was a priest. End of section 12, recording by Richard Carpenter in Seattle, Washington.